It's good to be back tonight. I hope you're thankful to be here. I want to open the Bible together, so let's take our Bibles tonight and open them to our study of the book of Ephesians. We are just scratching the surface, really, of all that is here, and we're returning to chapter 1 as we begin our time tonight, and we have just begun to really look at all the grand truths that are given to us in these first verses, particularly verses 3 through 14 of chapter 1. And so I want to read those verses for us again, and then we'll begin to just focus our attention on verses 7 through 12. The Apostle Paul says to these believers in Ephesus, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the kind intention of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, which He freely bestowed upon us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished on us. In all wisdom and insight He made known to us the mystery of His will, according to His kind intention, which He purposed in Him, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. And in Him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to His purpose, who works all things after the counsel of His will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of His glory. In Him also you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of His glory. It's almost as if we, we just want to keep reading it because of all the magnificent peaks that we just sailed through in a, in a matter of moments that the Apostle Paul puts here for us in these just these few short verses as they're listed for us here in our Scriptures. But as we begin our time tonight, I want us to just dedicate our time to the Lord and ask Him to honor it. If you would bow with me, Father, we thank You that we can be here once again tonight together as Your people opening Your Word to understand who You are and what You have done for us. Thank You for uh, the truths that we find here. Thank you for these beautiful gems that are just listed for us in one after another and all the wonderful things that you have done. Lord, may we understand them. May they be in our hearts and minds in order that you might receive what you are due, and that is the glory that is due your name. So work in us to that end, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I said this last Lord's Day that every sentence has a point. And under the Apostle Paul, as he was penning this very letter, as he's writing all of these grand truths, this one sentence, as it is in the original language, is no exception. Even though and because it is filled with other statements that, end, or that lend color to the main point. 
In other words, there's one main point, but all of these other phrases around it just lend more and more color to the, to the beauty that is here. And the main point is rather simple, I believe. The point is this, that we who are believers in Jesus Christ, you and I as Christians, as Paul is addressing those who are at Ephesus, who are faithful in Christ Jesus, in essence, speaking to all Christians, we who are believers in Jesus Christ, those who are genuinely saved by Christ's vicarious death, burial, and resurrection, we are to be living in such a way that our life is to the praise of the glory of God's grace. That we live in such a way that God is honored in what we do and how we do it. In the words of the Apostle Paul, really in a simplistic kind of way or in our own vernacular, it's simply to say that we are to speak well of God in all things and we are to live well for God. We are to speak well of God and we are to live well for God. That is just to say that we are to conduct our lives, we are to carry out our daily lives and however it is we are living in such a way that the effects of God's grace in our lives is on display through our lives. So what God has done for us is reflected in us in how we live. And so I don't believe there can be any more crucial a doctrine in all of Scripture than for the Christian to live worthy of the calling with which they are called. That's exactly how the Apostle Paul puts it when he comes to chapter 4 of this very epistle. You notice over in chapter 4 and verse 1, he says these very words. I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called, with all humility, with all gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to persevere or to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Why? Because there's one body, one Spirit. Just as you were called in one hope of your calling, there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So Paul is is exhorting the Ephesian believers that their lives are to be such that as they walk in their life, as they carry out their life, it is to reflect the very reality and understanding of all that God has accomplished on their behalf, and thereby in doing that, there be a unified body of Christ. There be a body of Christ whereby the believers are together, single-minded, one body, living out for God's glory. It's for that reason that Paul prays for these believers. In fact, notice just over in chapter 3, just for a moment, how Paul prays for these believers. Notice beginning in verse 14, he says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father. For what reason? For everything he's just said in chapter 1 and chapter 2 and up to this point in chapter 3. For this reason I bow 
my knee before the Father, for whom every family in heaven and earth derives its name. And here's why he's praying. So that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. Why? So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able, notice this, to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, so that you may be filled up with all the fullness of God. Paul says, I want you to have such a grand understanding of what God has accomplished. I'm praying that even through my tribulations and even through my efforts to, to bring the truth to you and, and you believe in the truth, that it would fill you to such a degree that you would have such an understanding and wisdom and knowledge of God in your heart and mind that you could do nothing else but to live out to the glory and honor of God. That God would receive all the praise because of how you live. And so we've, we've spent our time here just at the beginning in chapter 1, and we've, we've already looked at verses 3 through 6. We, we looked at that, and we were reminded of the words of Paul and the, what he was saying there, that the praise we live out is to be a commensurate praise. It is to be a com comparative praise to the praise that we have been given by God. That's the word he used. We have been so blessed by God that we are to bless God. That's the same word. God has blessed us, and therefore we are to bless Him. The root is praising God. We are to praise God because God has praised us with so much. Remember what he said in verse 4, just as he starts, just as he chose us in Him. In other words, God is to be praised. God is to be honored. We are to live out to the glory, to the praise of the glory of His grace, because according to as He has blessed us with all the spiritual blessings in Christ. He has given us all the spiritual blessings in Christ. So in a, in a comparative way, or an equal to what God has given to us way, we are to be praising God. Now that makes it very imperative that we understand not only what God has done for us, but also that it is from that understanding that our praise flows out. In other words, we're not going to praise God as God deserves to be praised to the glory of His grace if we don't understand what God has done for us. So if that's not happening, if we are not praising God as God deserves to be praised, if we are not living out in our lives to the praise of His glory in a commensurate way, then there are truths about the spiritual blessings that we have been given to us by God. There are truths about those that we either do not understand or that we are forgetting. We are prone to forget, aren't we? I mean, as Christians, we... We are just weak in our thinking. We are weak in our mind. We are weak in our exercise, in our practice of the Christian duties. We even saw it even in the study of James that Neil did a few weeks ago and how we are prone to look in the mirror and then forget. We walk away from the Word of God and forget what we have just read. We forget what we have just studied. We 
do it all the time. And there are times, many times, in fact, whereby we are simply living for us. Not living for God. We're not thinking about God. We're just going through the motions. We're living for us. We're living for our own glory rather than for the praise of His glory. In fact, turn over for a moment to First Peter or Second Peter chapter one. Second Peter chapter one, because it's interesting there. The apostle Peter speaks of this same truth, emphasizing it in a rather interesting way. Notice what he says, Second Peter chapter one. Simon Peter, a bondservant and the apostle of Jesus Christ, beginning in verse one. There, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And he starts out the same way many of the apostles do. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. So he's saying, listen, the grace of God and the peace of God, I want that to be super abounding to you as you understand what you have. As you understand God and understand Jesus Christ. Why? Because God, His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. How? Through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. We understand what we have in Christ when we understand what God has done for us. He says, for by these He has granted to us His precious and magnificent promises. By what? By his own glory and excellence. So he said in verse 3, we have an understanding of his glory, an understanding of his excellence, and it's by those that he granted these precious and magnificent promises to us, so that by them we might become partakers of the divine nature. You're not a partaker of the divine nature if you haven't escaped the corruption of the world by its lust. If, if Christ hasn't delivered you out of that, you're not a partaker of the divine nature. You have to be removed from that. We've escaped from the corruption that's in the world by its lust, by the power and glory of God. And he says, now for this reason also, you understand these things. He says, apply all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence in your moral excellence knowledge. In your knowledge, self-control. In your self-control, perseverance. In your perseverance, godliness. In your godliness, brotherly kindness. In your brotherly kindness, love. You see, if you understand what God has accomplished for you, if you understand all that God has done in your life by means of Jesus Christ, then, then you will be pursuing that. You will, be, you will be striving to glorify God in all the things God has given you. Your faith, your moral excellence, your your knowledge of Him, self-control, perseverance, the godliness. And of course, unity is developed through that, brotherly kindness and love. Notice what he says in verse 8, for if these qualities are yours and are increasing, that just simply says, if you're, you're practicing what you should be practicing in your life because you understand what God has done, then these things neither, render you neither useless nor unfruitful in what? The true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But, notice, he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten the purification from his former sins. So there's the juxtaposition. You understand what God has done, then walk by those things. If you don't understand those things, or if you're not walking by those things, you've either forgotten them, 
or you're blind to them. You're short-sighted. And he says, you want to fix that? Be all the more diligent, verse 10, to make certain about his calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you'll never stumble. Because in this way, the entrance of the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. And so Peter says, listen, I'll remind you of this every day of the week if I have to. I don't worry about reminding you of these things. I don't think they're too elementary for you to to be reminded of these things. I'm going to continue to remind you of these things even till the day that I'm removed from this earth. I will be diligent that at any time after my departure, you will be able to call these things to mind. That's why I want to remind you of these things over and over and over and over again so that when I'm gone, you'll be reminding yourself of these things. Now let's go back to Ephesians, right? What Paul is giving us in Ephesians chapter 1 is not just some list of truths that, that we can just blow over and move quickly past them and go, oh gee, isn't that nice, right? The truths that he's speaking about are the very truths that when we understand them are the motivating fuel, if you will, for proper Christian living, So you can't get to chapter 4 of Ephesians and say, I I want you to walk worthy of the calling which you walk without going through the pasture of Ephesians chapter 1 and all the grand truths because it's those grand truths that are the foundation for why we walk the way we need to walk. So these are that important. I have found over the years of ministry that the troubles we have in this life, the troubles we have in the Christian realm boil down to a lack of understanding of really one of three things or a combination of three things and then the failure to practice what we know about them. And those three things are a failure to understand who God is, a failure to understand who Jesus Christ is, or a failure to understand who the Spirit is and what they have done in salvation in our life. Christian people have relationship troubles. Why? Why is it that we have relationship troubles? Well, Paul says the reason you're gonna you'll have those if you don't understand these things. I want unity in the body. I don't want to have relationship troubles, and yet Christians have relationship troubles. Why? Because we fail to know and thereby then exercise our lives in light of who God is, in light of who Jesus Christ is in our lives, and therefore what it means to live out our salvation. We forget that. We're short-sighted on that, as Peter would say. So if we would have our understanding shaped by what the Bible means by what it says concerning those things, God, Christ, salvation, which he is highlighting here in chapter 1, and then live out our understanding of those things, it would then therefore yield a life that is to the praise of the glory of God's grace. But when we do not do that, then trouble comes. And so Paul says, Here in chapter 1, just as God has done all of this for you, then you be an imitator of God. Chapter 5, verse 1, that's what he says. Therefore, be imitators of God. God has done this for you. 
You be an imitator of God. So what has God done for us? Well, Paul says, first of all, he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. That is a staggering thought. He chose us before the foundation of the world with purpose. And that purpose was so that we would be holy and blameless before him. God elected us. When we understand that our salvation is not up to us and that it is all up to God in every way, then there is great unity in the church. There's been so much disaster over the years in the evangelical church over the centuries over this one doctrine alone. There are massive battles within evangelicalism over the reality of how does God save? And for whom did Christ die? And all of the things that flow out of the reality of God's choosing. It ought not be that way. This is the reason why Paul is writing to the church in this town, in Ephesus. Because... The body of Christ, the church local, the church universal, the church overall, the, body, the true body of Christ is to be unified. And in the day and age that Paul was writing, some Jews had difficulty with that idea. So we, the believers are the body of Christ in this world. We know that. We understand that. We get that. He Christ is the head. We, we are simply the branches. We are His body. He's the head. And therefore, we are to live as those who are like Christ. You want the world to see Christ, then the church needs to live like Christ. It's His body. The character of Christ is to be reflected in us as we walk in this world. Because we are the church. We are the, His body. The question we want to ask tonight is, how did we get there? Not, not how did we get disunified, but how did we as a people get into the body of Christ? Paul says God chose us before He ever created anything. He chose us in Christ before, verse 4, the foundation of the world. We've covered this over the last several weeks, but I, I can't get past it. In a sense, we are, we are looking in, in times past. In fact, time before time ever was time. We are looking into the mind of God before He ever created time. Before God ever spoke creation into existence, He decided to have a people, to have a, a created people who would reflect His character and reflect His nature. And through those people, he would reflect the perfect unity that is within the Godhead itself, this genuine, unified, perfectly unified uh, Godhead and love relationship between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. And God would create a people who would reflect that, and in doing so, that would be to the praise of his glory. And so the first part of creating the church is that He chose in Christ those who would make up that body. 
We sit here tonight as part of the church of God because God in His grace chose us. He chose us so that in the final analysis, we would be holy and blameless in His presence. That's what He says in verse 4. This is the purpose that He chose us before the foundation of the world, the goal that we would be holy and blameless before Him. Isn't that great? Philippians 1.6 clearly says this, He who began a good work in you will what? Will complete it. He will complete it until the day of Christ. So we've been chosen by God so that we would be holy and blameless before God. And there's no way that that will happen because this one who began the good work in us will complete it. In other words, we, there's no way that we will not be holy and blameless before God because God is the one who's doing it. Well, there's nothing in us that brought it about. It was before God ever spoke a word of creation to come about. We weren't even in existence. And therefore, our worth in all of this has nothing to do with us. Our worth in all of this has everything to do with God. The only reason we have any worth is because God chose us, not because we were worthy to be chosen. The only reason we have value before God is because God and what He has done. So what did God do in order to make it happen? How was it going to work out in time? Right? God, we're looking back in the past, in the mind of God before anything was ever created. How was it going to work out in time? Well, first, it was going to be worked out in time because He predestined it to do so. Verse 5. He predestined us. That just simply tells us everything's under God's control. We don't have to be confused about that. God is the predeterminer of all things. Paul says we have been predetermined to adoption as sons. Again, past time. God determined to make us sons in His choosing. And so He chooses us in Christ so that we might be holy and blameless because of Christ. You say, okay, well, how does all of that happen? How does all of that happen? That's the question I'm asking tonight. How does God carry out this predetermined plan in which we are chosen? Paul begins to tell us that in verse 7. Notice what he says. In Him. We have redemption through His blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. Underline the key word. The key word is redemption. Redemption. That's the key word. That's what we must understand. Redemption. And so Paul moves from what the Father has done to now what the Son does. The Father has chosen. The Father has predetermined. The Father has, uh, has a, a, an ultimate goal for our holiness and our blamelessness before Him. He has a goal of us as adopted sons, children of His own family. And now, 
we move into how the Son is part of that plan. Redemption is that word. In whom, in Him, we have redemption. That's the driving reality. We have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of His grace. Notice verse 8, which He lavished on us. Which He lavished on us. Now that's about as succinct a definition of redemption that you will find in all of Scripture. In order for God to bring us who are chosen, the elect, to Himself into the inheritance that He has predestined for us, He must redeem us. And it's certainly an inheritance that we have in the spiritual blessings because down in verse 14, He says, we have the Spirit of promise who is given as a pledge of our inheritance. So in order for God to accomplish that, He had to redeem us. Now let me just fill out the meaning of redemption a bit so that we fully understand it. Because if we're to live out to the praise of the glory of God, we need to understand redemption. And from that understanding, we can do that. So what is redemption? Well, here's here's the definition given for redemption in one of the many systematic theologies that I have in my office. Here's what it says. Redemption is an act of God by which He Himself pays as a ransom the price for sin which has violated His holiness. Redemption is an act of God, not an act of man. It is an act of God which He Himself pays the ransom price for sin which has violated His holiness. So this is all an interaction with God. God has done all this. It is saying that the concept of redemption is freedom. The concept of redemption is rescue by means of a payment. It's interesting when you look up redemption in the original language in the New Testament. Because what you find there is that there are two basic words that are translated as redemption. One has the root word from agora, and uh, the agora is the open market in the ancient days. That's what it is. It's, it's just an open place where you go to buy goods and things you might need. You, you'd go there and you would redeem whatever you had to trade. You would use that to redeem your things. The verb form of that word is, is uh, agorazo, and it means to buy out of the marketplace. That's what it means. So you'd go to the agora, and you would agorazo. You would buy what you needed from the marketplace. So that's one word used for redemption. And there's a lot of places in Scripture where that's used. And we'll maybe look at a couple later. But that's not the word Paul's using here. The word Paul is using is a, is a weightier word. It, it, it has greater emphasis, if you will. And it's really made up of, uh, it's a compound word uh, made up of two words, one a prefix and then a, a word itself. But the word that's used and which you'll find in the scriptures is apolutrosis. Apolutrosis. Apolutrosis is a word that occurs nine times in the New Testament. 
And it's always with the idea of a ransom or a price paid. It's always of that. You can see it in Matthew 28 or 2028 and Mark 10:45, right? Jesus came as a ransom for many. He didn't come to be served, he came to save and give his life as a ransom for many. Mark 10:25:45. But there are incident uh, instances in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, what is known as the Septuagint, where they use the word lutron, that's the word without the prefix on it, so that's the original word, lutron, in relation to man, man's relation to to another man. In other words, he buys them out of the marketplace. And you can go to Leviticus or Exodus, Numbers, different places in the Old Testament, and find that being used. But it's also used in the same sense as man's relationship to God, where we're buying something out, right? So we need to think of it like this. In the Old Testament days, you, you could, uh, where, where slaves were really prevalent in particularly the Roman Empire, buying and selling slaves was common. They did it kind of like we buy things at the grocery store. You just go there and get what you need, and a slave might be one of the things you need, just like they sold animals. But from time to time, a person might want to buy a slave for the purpose for the purpose of redeeming them or setting them free. Setting them free. Maybe it was uh, someone you loved very dearly who had a loan to someone else, and they were, they were basically a slave to that person until that was paid uh, and maybe the amount was such that they would never be able to do that. And yet you could come as a relative and you could buy them, you could redeem them so that you could set them free. So you could go to the owner and say, I'll give you this amount for this slave. And if it was agreeable, you'd purchase a slave. And rather than being a slave to you, you just set them free. That is essentially what this word here means that Paul is using in verse 7. It is apolutrosis, in whom we have apolutrosis, in whom we have the purchase which sets us free. So in Christ, we have the purchase which sets us free. So redemption is the rescue. Redemption is the deliverance by the payment of a price. And like I said, we know there are several passages in the New Testament which, which represent Christ's suffering under the idea that Christ was the ransom or the price and the result of that price was secured by Him as He purchased or redeemed His people. It's used all over the place. And Agora is kind of used in a, a synonymous way in those ways. And so sometimes in those passages you'll see the word agora and other times you'll see apolutrosis. But apolutrosis is the more weighty word. If you go back to Colossians for a moment, you'll just see this again by the Apostle Paul because he he's so... This is just always on his mind. And I think it's on his mind simply because this is the reality of who... We are in Christ. It's incomparable to Him. You notice in verse 13 of chapter 1, He uses even this term rescued at the beginning. For He rescued us from the domain of darkness 
and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have apolutrosis. We have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That's the exact same thing He's saying in the passage we are in in Ephesians chapter 1. It is apolutrosis. We have redemption through the blood of Jesus Christ. And so the idea running through all the passages in the New Testament, even where it uses the word agora, is that of a payment made for redemption. Something being paid so that we might be free. So the debt, think about it, the debt against us is not viewed as simply canceled out, as if the debt, the the one whom the debt was owed just goes, oh, okay, you don't owe me that debt anymore. That's not what happened. That's not what happened. God just didn't go, oh, I know you have this sin debt against me you can never pay, but I'm going to set you free anyway, even though you don't have, and you don't have to pay that debt anymore. In fact, the debt, I just wipe it away. That's not what it is. The debt is fully paid. But it's not paid by us. It is paid by Christ's blood. It is paid by the life of Christ, which He surrendered for us. Christ came to the slave market. He came to the Agora. And He surrendered Himself for us. He's the ransom by which we are secured for our deliverance from the slavery of sin. And from the judicial consequences of that slavery, which is death. This is why Paul says it this way in verse 7, in Him we have apolutrosis. In Him we have redemption. Hodges' systematic theology puts it this way, quote, Christ saves us neither by the mere exercise of power, nor by His doctrine, nor by His example, nor by the moral influence which He exerted, nor by any subjective influence on His people, whether natural or mystical, but as a satisfaction to divine justice, as an expiation for sin, and as a ransom from the curse and the authority of the law, thus reconciling us to God by making it consistent with His perfection to exercise mercy toward sinners. That is just simply to say that the owner, God him or the judge, God Himself could never set us free unless the ransom had been paid. God could not just wipe it away. Because to wipe it away would not have uh, been consistent with His perfection to exercise His mercy towards sinners. He couldn't be merciful to sinners who owed Him. He couldn't just wipe it away because His justice would not be satisfied. And so He had to do it through Christ. And so when we think about it, we think about all the people in the world. All the people in the world are slaves. The Bible tells us that it is sin that we are slaves to. And sin demands the price to be paid. Of course, we know the price, right? The wages of sin is death. That's the price, death. And so in order for us as sinners to be delivered from that sin and its wage, the wage had to be paid. There must be a death. There must be a death. Right? Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. What does remission mean? 
very basic, at its very basic level, remission means a pardon. In other words, that which you had, you no longer have. That's what remission means. That which you have, you no longer have. We think of typically remission, we typically only hear about it typically in our society now when we think about cancer. Someone who is cancer-free, they're in remission. What they had, they no longer have. And God says to us, when it comes to sin, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. Without death, the shedding of blood, a life given, sin remains attributed to us. So God could not have just cut Himself. Jesus could not have said, oh, let me scrape my hand on this nail and bleed, and my blood will save you. That's not the issue. It was His life by reason of the blood, which makes atonement. It was the death of Christ. Christ had to die. That was the requirement of redemption. In fact, Hebrews 9.22 says it this way, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. This is why Paul links these two right here in verse 7. In Him, in Jesus Christ, we have redemption which is equal to what? The forgiveness of our trespasses. The forgiveness of our trespasses. The forgiveness of our sin. Jesus has set us free from being slave to sin. And He did it by means of His life for our life. This is substitution. This is the doctrine of substitution. There is no salvation without the doctrine of substitution. There is no salvation without forgiveness. There is no forgiveness without the doctrine of redemption. There is no redemption without the price being paid. There is no redemption without something dying. There is no satisfaction of the justice of God without the perfect sacrifice dying for sin. Remember what Paul said in Galatians chapter 5? When we were studying through that, remember what he said? It was for freedom that Christ set you free. It was for freedom that Christ set you free. Colossians 1.13, Jesus has delivered us from the domain of darkness. That word, by the way, delivered, is the word of dragging us out. Jesus Christ drug us out of the domain of darkness. How? By going into the darkness, i.e. coming to this earth and dying for us. He drug us out of the domain of darkness. He rescued us from the slavery to sin and put us into the kingdom of light. And so God the Father, through God the Son, came to the Agora, paid the price for our freedom from sin slavery. And he did it, notice, according to, verse 7, the riches of his grace. He did it according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. (laughs) Now, Once again, that just simply means we didn't deserve it. We didn't deserve it. We didn't deserve to be bought out of there. We didn't merit buying out of there. 
It wasn't because of our worthiness to be bought out of there. We had no worthiness at all. It was simply according to the riches of His grace alone, which He chose to lavish upon us. But listen, as sinners, we alone in the presence of God are not holy and blameless. As sinners, we are not. As sinners, we deserve death. As sinners, we deserve to go to the place of punishment forever. As sinners, we have no holiness in ourselves. We have no blamelessness in ourselves. We are not holy and blameless before God as sinners. We are slaves to sin, and we are worthy of the penalty of sin. And yet God, God by His grace, sends His Son to pay the redemption price of death so that we might be made free. In doing so, the debt that we owed is now gone. That's why our debt is canceled. It is not canceled because God in His grace just says, okay, your debt's not there anymore. No, it's canceled because He sent the price. And He paid the price. The debt has been canceled. That's the Greek word, aphasis. Aphasis. It's it's the word we have here for forgiven. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the aphasis, the forgiveness of our trespasses. So it isn't that God just arbitrarily wiped the books clean for us who owed Him an eternity of debt. No, it's wiped off because it has actually been paid in full. And so whereby we were once slaves before God, now we are free. It was in Christ that He set you free. We are free in and through Jesus Christ. And so it's in the Son. It's in the Beloved One. It's in Him and only in Him that we are freed from sin's bondage. There is no other way. There is no other way. This is what Paul is saying. Listen, believers in Ephesus, there's no other way you got in. It was all because God got you in. How in the world can you hold yourself in some kind of high esteem about yourself? How can there be disunity in the church? You didn't put yourself there. There's no other way. Our sins have been sent away never to return again. And all that was happening in the mind of God before He ever spoke a word of creation. Think about that. All of that was in the mind of God, determined in the mind of God, in the heart of God, before He ever spoke a word in Genesis 1-1 saying, let there be light. And so in one sense, in the heart and mind of God, our, our sins were already, at least in the mind of God, as we're looking back and, and pondering into the into the mind of God's thinking, our sins were already totally forgiven before He ever created the world whereby it fell into sin because of the Son. That's why. The sad part is that some Christians go around all depressed. We go around sometimes all depressed in our lives because we think somehow God is going to hold me accountable to some sin. 
Now, that's not saying that we ought to think about sin in a light way. When we sin, we have to turn from it. We ought to walk in obedience, right? We ought to carry ourselves worthy of a manner with which we've been called. And yet the reality is, in, in the grandest sense, is that it doesn't matter the sin. All the sin has been forgiven us because of Christ. And so why should we ever go around moping as if we are going to be squashed like a bug by our Father? It will never happen. It can't happen. Why? Because God sent our sin away. He forgave it. Psalm 103 says, as far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. Can somebody just tell me how far that is? How far is that? The east from the west. You ever measured that? No, it never stops. You can't measure it. It can't measure it. You go west, you'll continue to go west, and you'll continue to go west, and continue to go. It never stops. You can't reach the east as far from the west. It's infinite. Isaiah 44.22 says this, I've wiped out your transgressions like a thick cloud and your sins like a heavy mist. Return to me. Why? Because I have redeemed you. Listen, beloved, being in Christ means that our sins are me. They are forgiven. They are effaces. They're gone before God. They are sent away never to come back again. We sit here tonight and we say, you know what? We don't deserve that. We don't deserve it. You're right. We're right. We don't. That's the point. That's Paul's point. You don't deserve it. Of course you don't. None of us deserve it. That's why Paul's saying it. The point is that God has done it. And therefore, we are to live to the praise of the glory of His grace. God has chosen us. God has made it such that we will be holy and blameless before Him. And in Christ we already are. And God has predestined us to be His children so that we are fully engulfed in all that is Christ. It all came according to the kind intention of His will and that to the praise of the glory of His grace which He freely bestowed on us in Christ. And in Him He bought us back. He bought us. He carried it out through sending the Son and that beloved Son, God, the God-man came and died, shed His blood so that our sins would be put as far as the east is from the west in time. So that God's heart and mind that was predetermined before the foundation of the world would actually play out in time and we would be that very child of God. Notice, not only do we have redemption, which brought about the forgiveness of our sins. But secondly, he says, in Christ, God has given us the ability to understand Him and to live according to that understanding. Notice, notice what he says in verse 8 and just the beginning of verse 9. I just want to introduce this. We're not going to get into it tonight, but I just want to introduce it for us because, because if we get into it tonight, we'll be here till 10 o'clock, and I don't want to do that. But notice what he says. In all wisdom and insight, verse 8, 
He made known to us the mystery of His will. We can stop right there because God not only has forgiven us our sins, He chose us in Christ. He predestined us as sons. He forgave us our sins through the blood of His Son, but He has equipped us with the very ability to be discerning. To be discerning. He chose us to be holy and blameless. He adopted us as His own sons and has fully engulfed us in the reality of Jesus Christ so that we might have the inheritance of God through Christ as Christ has the inheritance of the Father. He redeemed us so that our sins are now gone. They are forgiven. And then He equipped us with the ability to understand Him. That's what He's saying. In other words, we can understand the Word of God, which informs us about God and His absolute truth. We can understand God. We, In all wisdom and insight, He made known to us the mystery of His will. How does He make known to us the history of His will? He gave us the ability to understand Him. I find it rather ironic that some of the greatest intellectual minds that the world can produce can look out to the vastness of space and refuse to acknowledge the God that created the world. They have all the intellect to write all the books of man's wisdom on how everything has come to be, at least according to their highest of IQs that the world can offer as they look out through their vast telescopes that they have created through their wisdom that I could never create. I don't know how to do any of that stuff. And they declare through all their wisdom there is no God. And if they do acknowledge that there is some kind of higher power, some kind of supreme being, they don't want to call Him God, but they'll say He's some kind of high supreme being, but they will say He cannot be known. And yet here we are, not the highest intellects in the world, and yet we sit here with full confidence that if someone walks up to us and says, how was the world created? We just open the Bible and say God created it in six literal days. And we stand with confidence on that, knowing that God has assuredly given us the answer that He created the heavens and the earth. Why do the intellects of the world not know that answer? Why do they say the answers they do? Because God has chosen to give wisdom to His own. And not to those who are worldly wise. That's what 2 Corinthians says. Wisdom of God has been given to those who are not wise according to the world's wisdom. James says if we lack wisdom, we just go to God. We lack wisdom. If we lack skill in living, if we lack what we need to know, we just open the Word of God. We go to God and God has given us an understanding. God holds nothing back from us as His children. He tells us everything we need to know for life and godliness as we read in 2 Peter. So we can answer even the most difficult of questions with the Word of God. Why? Because He leads us in truth. And He has made it such that we are equipped to live that truth out in the world. God has called us, He has equipped us to know Him, and we know Him, and therefore we live out that truth in the world. We know the mystery of His will. People say, I don't know what to do. I do. Here, just follow God. Here's what He said. 
How? Through His Word. Do what His Word says. Wow. Pretty amazing, isn't it? We've been chosen by God. He predestined it to happen. And since He chose us, we needed to be holy and blameless before Him, and so He makes that happen. He purposes to send God the Son so that He can secure our redemption, and God would be then in Him forgiving our sins forever. And then He gives us His wisdom. He gives us insight into His will so that we might understand all that He desires of us through the Son as we live for Him in this body known as the church. It's all ours through faith in Jesus Christ. And because of it, we ought to be living to the praise of the glory of His grace. Because we understand those things, because we know those things, because God has opened our minds to understand those things in wisdom and insight, we have to be living according to the glory, to the praise of the glory of His grace. Notice, just want to just share this for a moment. It says, He may know the mystery of His will, verse 9. Notice he says, according to the kind intention which he purposed in him, that is in Christ, with a view. So in Christ, we have this understanding and view to an administration suitable to the fullness of times. Guess what that is? That's, that's eschatology. That's end time stuff. We have an understanding of the things that are end times, that in the fullness of times, there's going to be a summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heaven and things on the earth. We don't have to be confused about the beginning. We don't have to be confused about the end. God has given us wisdom through it all. It's all in Christ. All, I, all, all we can really do is sit here and go, wow. Wow. This is, this is absolutely mind-blowing. What God has accomplished for us. So if we know Jesus Christ, then Paul is simply saying, then live out Christ. Live it out to the praise of the glory of God's grace. Well, we'll dive off the diving board into that pool next time. Swim a little more. See if we can get a little farther down. Let's pray together. Lord, I pray that we would understand these phenomenal truths that we would understand the realities which we have freely been given through Your Son. Thank You for all that we have in Christ. May it be seen in our lives in commensurate ways as we reflect it through our obedience to You, as we live in honor to You for all that You have done for us as Your children. Lord, if there's some in our midst who are not part of your family, we pray that you would draw them to yourself. That they would understand who they are before you and that you are calling them to, to turn from their sin, to believe upon Jesus Christ as their satisfactory substitute. And I pray, Lord, this world would see us and therefore and thereby see Christ. And that for those 
who do not know Christ, if they place their faith in Christ today, that this would be a day in which they truly know life in Him. All to your glory, all to your praise. For it is in Christ's name we thank you and praise you. Amen.